one. All right, Sophia. So I always like to ask people about their childhood to start things off. I know you you grew up, uh, your dad was a big football coach, your mom from Costa Rica. So uh, definitely some some interesting parts just on the surface about your childhood. When you think back to, to your days growing up, uh, what are the things that really stand out to you? Interests, hobbies, influences, whatever jumps out. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say both of those things really created kind of the foundation of how I grew up. Um, you know, with my dad being a high school football coach, he started at my high school when I was in kindergarten and he was coaching even before that. So, um, for me, it was like, I really grew up at that high school, um, Edgewood high school in Madison. And I always tell people that if they've seen the movie, remember the Titans, that I, basically had the life of of Cheryl you know the the coach's daughter coach Yost's daughter um and that was one of my favorite movies kind of growing up when when that movie came out and so many people who like knew my family you know said something along the lines of you could have been that girl in that movie like it just it was very (laughs) similar you know like I just my brothers and I we were always running around the the high school and the gym and the weight room. And my dad would, you know, give us projects to help him out, whether it was, you know, going to pick up equipment and sort stuff into piles. And um, I mean, the workouts, timing players, you know, making Gatorade, film, all, I mean, everything. It was like, he really included us in all of that. Um, He made us feel a part of it. It was fun for us. You know, we had a blast making, you know, forts out of tackling dummies and just, you know, (laughs) we would just entertain ourselves at practice. Um, And, you know, and then I think because we were around that so much, obviously we all, you know, we grew up in a sports environment. So we kind of played everything growing up. You know, my brothers were three sport athletes. They played football, basketball, baseball. Um, And for me, um, they played soccer as well. For me, I got into volleyball and basketball played a little bit of like t-ball softball but that just didn't really stick as much for me so um we we just we had fun with it um and it you know he was competitive with us he put together weightlifting programs for us when we were pretty young so um that was definitely a big part of it of just being around sports all the time was very normal for us and then you know on the side of my mom uh sylvia she is from costa rica And she was the first in her family to get married. And she married my dad, who's originally from Illinois. And so they moved to the U.S. um, after getting married in Costa Rica. And they did that primarily so my dad could keep teaching and coaching. Um, She made that sacrifice to to leave her home country and kind of never looked back. But it was something that was very much a part of our life. You know, my I was the first grandchild on that side of the family and my grandparents didn't speak any English. So it was very much a rule and a part of our life at home that like when we were at home, we spoke all Spanish all the time with my mom. And she was very disciplined with us about that, about speaking Spanish to us, taking us down to Costa Rica every year. Um, You know, she would keep us down there for longer periods of time before we were in school because she really understood that was the best way for us to learn the language. So um, we still go back, you know, every year at Christmas time, that was traditionally when my parents took us or we'd go for spring break or over the summer, we, they just, they always found a time uh, to take us and, and made sure that we were very aware of that part of our background, that it was part of our life and, and also just to stay connected with all of our family there. 
So you know, I think that Costa Rican element's really interesting. I, I'm the only one in my family born in America. Even my brothers and parents were born in South Africa. So I grew up with, I guess, a somewhat similar experience of not having American parents or, or, or you know, in, in your case, you had one, but but one who was not. And there are a lot of things that I take away from my upbringing, whether it's cultural stuff from South Africa that my, my family brought to America or just the ways they went about things. I'm curious, uh, beyond the, you know, learning Spanish and really immersing yourself uh, in that way, what are some of the, the cultural uh, elements that, maybe is is important to folks like your mother who grew up in Costa Rica that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten exposed to that you did growing up uh, with a Costa Rican mother in America? Yeah, I think, you know, the language is the obvious one um, of just speaking Spanish all the time and having that foundation. And, and you know, they, my parents always told us, like, we're doing this because this is your background and this is your family and this is important. But I think they also understood that there was significant value for us personally and professionally, right? Like just in, no matter what you do, there's value in having a second language. Um, so that was the obvious one. And then I think just, you know, the connection to family, I think the, the Latin culture is so family oriented. Um, you know, it was a big deal for my mom to, to marry an American and, and leave and, and move to the U.S. And, and again, all of her family is still there. Um, they all live fairly close to each other, you know, typical, like, go over to my grandparents' house on a Sunday, right, for for family lunch or dinner. Um, you know, it's just, it's, it's a very connected family culture. And, and that was something that my parents really instilled in us, too. Um, you know, just the importance of that and the value of that. And then I think even just culturally, like the time that we spent down there, um, you know, my grandfather has a, a beef cattle farm. So we would, you know, we'd ride horses and we'd, you know, mess around with the baby calves and we'd learn about branding cattle. And, you know, we got to see so much as kids that I wouldn't have seen otherwise, you know, growing up in Madison, Wisconsin. So, um, you know, despite the, uh, the stereotype that everybody in Wisconsin lives on a farm, um, that was not <laughs> my reality. So, um, you know, we were just, we were exposed to a lot, obviously getting to travel, um, as much as we did just seeing different parts of the world, different lifestyles, different cultures. Um, I think there was, there was a lot of value in that of recognizing, you know, that even our life in the U S was different than what my cousins were living in Costa Rica. There were still very much similarities there. Um, but, but also differences and, and that was okay. And, and it was just good to like be aware of all those things. Just curious. What is your favorite Costa Rican meal? Oh gosh. Well, my, my grandfather's farm is on the Pacific coast, um, in the Guanacaste Nicoya Peninsula. So, I mean, you're 10 minutes from the beach. So I just, I love like the, the ceviche, um, all the fresh seafood, um, of course, like the rice and beans, which I, you can make, I don't know, you, it just doesn't taste the same <laughs> when you come here <laughs> and you try to make it. Like I tell my aunts that all the time. I'm like, they're, they're frijoles. Like they just, they taste better there um, than even if I try to recreate it at home. So I would say definitely the ceviche, um, you know, growing up and being at, at my grandpa's farm, we would do kind of big cookouts and stuff and they would make chicharrones which are like pork rinds um 
So, I mean, just things like that, that again, it's just so tied to our time there that even when you try to make it here at home, it just, just not the same. All right. I was told I have to ask you how your parents met. I, I imagine there's a, a story <laughs> behind there. And, and based on your laugh, I guess there is. If you wouldn't mind sharing, how did your parents meet? Sure. Yeah, it is. It is a great story. And um, I tell them all the time. It was kind of like, OK, no pressure on my brothers and I to try to top this story because it's really um, a crazy story. So my um, my mom, you know, who grew up in Costa Rica, she was the third of eight kids, and my grandfather wanted them to have experiences abroad, kind of whatever that looked like. Um, so the oldest one, Tony, her brother, he did um, a program to study abroad, and he was placed in Illinois for his senior year of high school. And he was placed with the Minert family, which is my dad's family. And my dad is from a really small rural town in the Quad Cities area of Illinois. I think the population is like eight or 900 people. Um, so Tony and my dad, Alan, were seniors in high school together. And my dad had two brothers as well. And they also lived on a farm. So it was, it was a really cool connection of, you know, Tony had all this interest in farming from, from my grandpa and agriculture and the business of it. And, and that's very much what my dad and, and his brothers were into as well, being on a farm. So um, Tony spent all of his senior year there with my dad and his family in Illinois, graduated, went back to Costa Rica to go to college. Um, my dad also went to college and then went down to Costa Rica to go visit Tony. And he met my mom, Sylvia, who I think was 16 at the time. And, um, it, that was how they initially met, you know, he spoke a little bit of Spanish, not much kind of same story for her. She spoke a little bit of English, not really much of anything. Um, so that's how they met. And then my mom did the same program. She was placed as a senior in high school in Pennsylvania, had a great experience there with her host family. My dad was in college at the time. Um, and so they just kind of started writing letters, (laughs) very old school, as long distance calling was so expensive in the 70s. And so they, uh, they started writing letters. And so from the time that they met in 1977, this whole process took about seven years. And they were married in Costa Rica in December of 1984. That's amazing. It's crazy, right? Crazy. I just want to... And what's cool is like, you know, some of my mom's siblings kind of in their time abroad, like her sister went and spent some time with the Minner family in Illinois. Uh, there was another brother who came over and spent some time there. So it kind of created this connection between the two families. Um, you know, and then my dad's parents went down to Costa Rica to visit Tony and kind of meet the rest of the family. So it just, it created this family connection that uh, still exists to this day. Um, you know, with my mom and her, and her siblings, you know, they, visit my my dad's parents in Illinois so it's just it's it's a crazy story um one that you kind of can't really make up that's really special too and 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 just to think back then you know you mentioned writing letters and and the cost of calling you know now it's I guess like you take for granted how easy it is you just shoot someone a text or you know email that stuff didn't exist back then that's I I, now I feel bad. I just, I met my wife on a blind date. That's not nearly as fun or creative <laughs> as that. I got to come up with a better story. I, I know. I know. That's why I say it's like that my parents, like we, we always knew the story, 
But I think my parents were always kind of cautious about talking about it a lot, kind of for that reason. Like they didn't want to create this sort of unrealistic expectation, right? Of I mean, I don't know how you top that story. I just, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, think I don't you know can. how you top it. So um, it, it, it's very cool, though. And, and I think what's cool now is just how how connected the two families still are. Yeah, that, that really is neat. Uh, all right, so... Let's talk a little bit about broadcasting. I read that you got your start at 15. That was your first, I guess, exposure <laughs> to broadcasting. What what drew you to that? Why were you interested at that age and, and just even giving it a shot? Yeah, I think, again, this, this goes back to my dad of, you know, we would go to every game and then my brothers and I would be running around on the field after the game and, you know, my dad would talk to the local sports writer or local TV station, whoever was there covering the game. And I'd, you know, take along and listen, or I'd watch it back at home, or then I'd read the newspaper story the next day. And I'd kind of offer my feedback at such a young age. I kind of laugh at that. of like, well, that's not really what you said, or that's not really how that went, or why did they write this? Or why didn't they include this part? Um, and so I was always just kind of interested in the, the media part of it. Um, and then finally it kind of came to this point of like, well, why don't, why don't you do that? You know, like you could be the one asking the questions. You could be the one doing the work. And so again, I was just, I was around it. I saw it from an early age. I liked it. Um, and, you know, because of like being around my dad's football teams and around that environment, I kind of got to know some of these local sports writers there was a high school sports website that was starting at the time. There was, you know, I was connected to a, a high school sports production company, which is where I started working when I was 15. And so they were creating kind of these documentary style highlight films covering an entire season for a football team or what basketball, whatever. They just covered a lot of sports. Um, so I started working there and, you know, learned just the basics of shooting and editing and covering a game and all of that started writing for this high school sports website. Cause I was like, well, I'm at all these games anyway, I might as well do something productive. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how it started, um, which was in high school sports. And then fast forward a little bit when I graduated from Marquette in 2009, you know, my plan was to send out, demo reels to kind of all the local tv stations and try to latch on that way because that's the traditional path and that production company that i had worked for in high school had pivoted their business model and they had now acquired the broadcast rights to all of the high school state sports and state tournaments and they were starting to do live web streams of all these games and all these state tournaments so when i graduated they said well while you're looking for a job why don't you come back, help us out through the summer. We're in the middle of our spring tournament season. It's crazy. We need help. And, and then we'll go from there. And I ended up staying almost three years. So I took a little bit of an untraditional path, but, but that start in high school sports was, was probably the best place for me to, to learn and get reps and be in kind of that live sports environment. So was it, was broadcasting a, a love it, first sight type thing was it like immediately hey this is maybe something i'd want to do or was it at first more hey this is a fun thing to do while i don't know i'm just trying to try things out and have fun before i got to make some serious adult decisions yeah it's it's funny because i'd never i mean i, I watched 
you know, women on TV, like women like Hannah Storm and Susie Colbert and Pam Oliver. And I, so I, I certainly saw that at a young age and I wasn't necessarily sold on television. I just knew I wanted to be in media and I was kind of open to what that looked like, whether it was writing, journalism, um, you know, I, I, I was aware of like the web presence, radio, TV, obviously. So I was, I was kind of all over the place, to be honest. I just knew I wanted to be in it. And so um, at Marquette, I decided to do a journalism and Spanish double major because I thought, well, no matter what, journalism will give me the good writing, reporting skills that will have value kind of whichever direction I decide to go. And I knew I wanted to study abroad, which is why I did the Spanish major. Um, and then it was, it was really the broadcasting thing really clicked for me when the summer between my junior and my senior year in 2008, I had the opportunity to do an internship at ESPN in Bristol, Connecticut. And it was really working in studio production at ESPN that summer that really cemented the broadcast thing for me. Like just being in that environment, seeing the live shows, helping kind of put on these shows on a nightly basis, watching the talent work, you know, just all the behind the scenes of how these shows come together, producers and directors and production assistants that are editing and, and writing and, and the talent then going on and seeing what you see on TV. Um, that's really what's meant at the broadcasting thing for me. And so then I, I came back for my senior year at Marquette and I, I did basically a year long internship with the sports department and the ABC affiliate here in Milwaukee. And, and that's, that's really where I kind of made the pivot to, to broadcasting and thought, okay, this is, this is the path for me. Like I really want to be in this, live sports production environment. Was there anyone, and, and I'd read about your experience there at ESPN, was there anyone in particular that, that stands out to you to this day who really influenced you, whether it was someone uh, in front of the camera, behind the camera, that, that just kind of took you under their wing, or was it just kind of the, the whole uh, body of folks you interacted with during that time? It was It was definitely the whole experience, and I say that because they were, I mean, they were wonderful to us in terms of they, they kind of told us, listen, this, in, this internship is going to be what you make of it. So if you want to spend time on another show, if you want to shadow somebody, if you want to set up a meeting, we're all open to that. You know, they, they made us feel included and that was that that was you know, permissible and, and the staff there was open to it. And they were also flexible in terms of like accommodating our interests. Um, so, so, so that we could really be exposed to the things that we wanted to be. Um, and, and I would say, you know, Rob King was the person that I met. Um, he came and gave a lecture at Marquette. And at the time he was like the editor in chief of ESPN.com. He's now one of the senior VPs of production. Um, he's, he's really, um, impactful and a wonderful person. Um, and he was really the first connection. So Rob King and then, um, Wendy Nix was incredible to me. She really became a go-to person for me in terms of someone, again, who was willing to let me shadow them for a couple days at a time. Let me talk to them about different things that they had experienced in their career, um, how she was navigating, you know, life as a working mom and, and all that stuff. So um, she was one. And then just a number of like the producers and supervisors that I got to work with, like Greg Colley, Adam Stanko, 
um, a lot of the fellow interns I'm, I'm still friends with today and kind of follow what they're doing. So, yeah, there were definitely, um, I think just the, the whole experience, again, they were so open to our questions, our interests, and allowing us to pursue different things, which was, which was really cool. Sophia, was, was baseball, uh, I know you obviously grew up around football and around sports, but did you have a love for baseball to, uh, that, that I imagine maybe you have now, or was that something that kind of evolved over time? You know, it's funny because I get that question, and, and when I was growing up and even when I started this job with Fox Sports Wisconsin in, in 2013, you know, a lot of people were like, why aren't you covering football? You know, like that seemed like the obvious one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I definitely grew up liking baseball. Like we would go to games at County Stadium, you know, Bob Uecker on the radio, just like every other Wisconsin household, right? And, you know, my dad actually, because he grew up in, in the Quad Cities area, he grew up a Cardinals fan. So we would even go to Cardinals games or go to St. Louis, go to Bush Stadium. Um, so I, I definitely like grew up with baseball around, went to games, liked it. Um, quite frankly, the Brewers weren't very good when I was (laughs) a kid. So it was more just like, it was fun to go to a baseball game, you know? And I, I would say it probably wasn't until I was in college, you know, like the 2008 season when they finally broke through the playoff drought, you know, 26 years, um, I I kind of latched onto it later in life, I would say. And then I think it just sort of evolved where that's where I had an opportunity. I think obviously the bilingual thing um, that has more value in major league baseball than in any other professional sport. And, and I think once, once I was in it, I really grew to love it even more, you know, just being in it every day, getting to know the people, learning more about the game, uh, learning more about the strategy and the decisions and kind of how a season unfolds. I, I it's, it's infinitely different now than even when I started. Um, even just going back to being a fan in, in high school and college, I think it's obviously, you just learn so much more. Um, you love it so much more. Um, but yeah, it's, it's funny because I, I think as a kid, if you would have told me I was doing what I'm doing now, I think that that would have been surprising. One of the things you do that I absolutely love, and and you know, for people listening, it probably isn't a surprise that you have this uh, in your skill set, but the ability to communicate, uh, not just with the English speaking players, but the the Spanish speaking players, and and you do these bilingual interviews where you're able to to convey what these players who otherwise maybe wouldn't have a, a platform to accurately or adequately express themselves to the English-speaking fans, uh, but you you kind of allow them to do that. And and I remember my first, not that I, I ever didn't think it was a challenge, but when my first year broadcasting the minors, you're around these young kids, 16, 17, 18 years old, who are in a country that you know they know very little about, they don't speak the language, and I just, I, that was like a wake-up call for me as to how difficult that must be. Without being in their shoes, uh, the fact that they are fighting for their professional lives but doing so in an an incredibly unfamiliar environment. And I imagine the players, uh, you know, even though to do it at the major league level, they have 
achieve success, I imagine they appreciate that there is someone who is able to, to communicate with them and, and kind of be a, uh, you know, a, a, a intermediary between, uh, you know, the English speaking fans and the Spanish speaking fans. What is it about that that is so important for you? Why is, is doing that other than just showing off an ability to speak Spanish? Cause I don't think it's just that. Why is connecting with the Spanish speaking players and, and, and connecting the fans with them so important to you? Yeah, I think, I think you said it and it's the word connection, right? I think for me, it's, it's about that connection and it's also about comfort. Um, you know, first of all, I think, I think it's important for any player to have the ability to express themselves, uh, to be able to speak on their own, to be able to share their story, to be able to, uh, talk about whatever's going on on the field, if that's what we're talking about. Um, I think it's important for, for all of them to have the same opportunity to do that. I think as, as a fan and a viewer, um, you want to feel connected to these people. I mean, they are, you know, the top 1% of athletes and, and they do amazing physical things on the field, but, but they're people too, you know, they, a lot of them have really interesting stories. And I think, I think you, as a fan and as a viewer, you, you connect with them more when you feel like you get to know them um, and you invest a little bit more in them. And so I think, you know, our, our job is to, to be the liaison between the two and, and to tell the stories when it's appropriate and to help our fans and our viewers feel connected to the players on the field that they're watching every night. So I think, I think it's ultimately about connection and then I think for me, it's, it's about comfort. You know, I, I don't take for granted the fact that a player might trust me to, to do the interview the way that we do it, um, where I'm, I'm translating for them. And I always tell them, like, I will try to do this as accurately as possible. I, I'm not going to get it verbatim, but I always try to be as accurate as, as I possibly can be. Um, and, and so I, I don't take for granted the fact that they trust me to do that because it really is a two-way street. You know, they, they do have to trust me to do that. And, and in turn, I, I don't take for granted, you know, having the permission to tell that story or to speak on their behalf and, and help the fans and the viewers feel connected to them in that way. And, you know, I, I recognize, too, like we had the opportunity with Fox in 2013 to spend just over two weeks in the Dominican Republic. And we did a series of shows for, for the Brewers and the Twins um, on baseball in the Dominican Republic. And it was so eye-opening for me. And I think that's where I really had more of an appreciation and understanding of what these players go through. Um, and it's, it's multiple steps, right? I mean, they have a lot of pressure on them from even being 12, 13, 14 years old to when you can be, you know, signed internationally at the age of 16, um, what these baseball academies are like um, in the Dominican Republic when you sign a professional contract at 16 years old, um, and also just the, the societal pressure of, for a lot of these kids, when they sign a contract, it's not just about them. They're often supporting a family, extended family. Um, it becomes their job. It's no longer a hobby. Um, it's, it's a professional contract. And I mean, the odds are so stacked against them to even make it off the island, to leave the Dominican Republic and start working your way up the minor league system. So, 
you know, one of my favorite stories that we did was with Carlos Gomez. And he was so emotional talking about what that time was like for him of being a 16 year old kid, leaving the Dominican Republic, leaving your family, crying on the airplane, getting to the U.S., not really speaking the language, you know, sharing a story about going to Wendy's and ordering a sandwich, you know, number seven, because that was his favorite number. (laughs) And that's what he could afford. And then finally, he learned how to say no pickles, because he didn't, he didn't know the word for pickles, but he didn't like the pickles. So he would just take them off the sandwich, like things like that. You're like, wow, you know, it's just something that quite frankly, uh, a player coming up here in the States can't really identify with most of them can't um, to be a teenager and be on your own in a country where you don't speak the language. And by the way, you're also trying to perform to work your way up the minor league system. I mean, it's daunting. It is really, really daunting when you think about it. Um, And so I just seeing that firsthand, um, hearing their stories, I think was really what changed my perspective on it. And I, I, these players, and you know this, Jared, these players are critiqued and analyzed for every single thing that they do physically on the field. And the last thing I want is for them to feel that same sort of pressure and criticism for wanting to speak their mind or wanting to share their story or wanting to talk about the game that day or their career. So I try to at least create an opportunity where they feel comfortable doing that. Well, and you know, you mentioned Carlos Gomez and, you know, we had the pleasure in in Texas to have him for, you know, a a little more than a year. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he came with, you know, a reputation uh, that was far different than the reality. I mean, this was in, in obviously right. you, you got to know him. I mean, this is one of the, the kindest, happiest, uh, most enjoyable people in baseball. And maybe because, you know, he didn't speak the language or uh, didn't speak it as well. I should say, uh, you know, he got this bad reputation when, if you just have a conversation with the guy for two minutes uh, you realize that it's impossible to not love this guy and, and to not appreciate right. the way he plays. And, and I imagine there are so many players out there who don't have the ability to, whether it's defend themselves or express themselves in a way that allows them to connect that, you know, there are these reputations that are just so unfair. And, and I'm, I'm glad you brought up Carlos Gomez. Cause for me, he might be at the top of the list of, of guys who they're not, you know, English is not their first language. And, People say X, Y, and Z about them, but the reality isn't X, Y, and Z. It's A, B, and C. Yeah, and I think think that's on us, honestly, to be aware of that, of like, you know, when when they're coming up, they're so consumed by this pressure to perform, right? And again, it comes from all those pressures that are on them as kids when they're coming up and families that they're supporting and they're on their own. And, you know, everybody knows like time is on the clock. Your window is small. You know, you have to maximize your opportunity. Um, but, but the reality is like, there's a lot going on for them off the field. The language is one of them. And I think, you know, they're all at varying levels of, confidence and comfort you know it's one thing for you know you to have a a two-minute conversation with Carlos Gomez in the dugout it may be another thing for to to put a microphone in front of his face to put a camera in front of his face I mean that's pressure right I think not not everybody is comfortable with that no matter what language you speak 
And so I think that's on us to be aware of that and, and being sensitive to it is like, you know, I use Freddie Peralta as an example now. Um, he was 21 years old when he came up and made his major league debut. That's astonishing in itself. Um, but, you know, from where Freddie was at 21 when he made his debut to where he is now, I mean, he really, he works hard at it. Um, he wants feedback. He asks you for feedback. And, and he's also not afraid to say, you know what, I'd rather do this in Spanish because I want to get this out properly and I want to get this out the way I want to say it. And I respect him so much for saying that and, and owning that and, and for being willing to try and put yourself out there and, and know that you're going to make mistakes. You know, that was something that Carlos Gomez said to me when we would talk about this kind of stuff is he's like, I know I'm, my English is not perfect. I'm not going to pretend it's perfect. I know I'm going to make mistakes. I hope that you're okay with those mistakes. I'm like, absolutely. Like I give you credit just for trying it and putting yourself out there. So um, yeah, I just think, I think that's on us as like media people, as fans, as viewers, as people that are like consuming this, this content, you know, to have that awareness and that sensitivity and, and empathy, quite frankly, um, because they are, they are trying, they're putting themselves out there. And a lot of them are working on it on their own, you know, trying to improve. Uh, Sophia mentioned her time in the Dominican Republic and you go online. She wrote a piece back, uh, I guess, shortly after uh, your return in 2013 that, that kind of highlights some of the experiences. And I encourage people to, to look for it. It's it pretty easy to find on Google. Uh, and you know, there's some, I guess, anecdotes that are, are really neat, whether it's Gene Segura making baseball, uh, baseball out of a sock and, and introducing people to Ozzy Virgil, who, uh, you know, is, is kind of in a way, I guess the Jackie Robinson of, of the Dominican, as far as it pertains to playing baseball at, at the major league level is, it was really neat. I really enjoyed reading that and, uh, I'm, I'm glad and I appreciate you, uh, sharing some of those stories and those experiences. Cause I know that's, that's powerful beyond just, Hey, let's go and do a story here and, and produce some content. I know it, it probably meant much more to you than just that. Uh, I want to ask you, Sophia, you you made the transition a few years ago uh, from working for a TV network uh, in in Fox Sports to now working for the Brewers. And uh, I know we have a a very close mutual friend in in Emily Jones, who I can only imagine uh, has impacted you the way that she's, you know, influenced and impacted me. And and she did something similar where now instead of working for Fox Sports Southwest, she works for the Rangers. So I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, what led you to do that, and, and what are some of the differences and, and, and pleasures you've experienced uh, getting to work for the Brewers as opposed to a network? Yeah, um, I mean, I was very fortunate that the Brewers approached me with this kind of this idea and this opportunity uh, for me to to work directly for the team. And and I think sometimes for the for the fan or the viewer, there's some confusion, right? Of like, well, do you work for the team? Do you work for the network? You appear on both. Um, and, and they are partners, obviously, so so there is some gray area there. But I think the the big thing that the Brewers offered me was was an opportunity to to join the team directly, but also um, kind of create this digital series and, and provide access and an opportunity and a platform with with the Brewers digital team to create this YouTube series, Brewers on Tap. Um, that's something that I like doing, you know, I kind of similar to the Dominican Republic project, which was, you know, on a much bigger scale, you know, to do a couple kind of full length shows. 
um, and do a series like that. That was a, an incredible project. One of those like once in a lifetime that you hope isn't once in a lifetime. Um, but I, I love doing kind of more long form interviews. I love the sit down format. I love, you know, feature writing and, and putting together kind of those, those feature shows. Um, and that's honestly just not something I had a lot of time nor opportunity to do with Fox. We, we could do it, you know, when we could, and, and they would always encourage more of that kind of content, but, um, it's just, it's tough when, you know, for Fox Sports Wisconsin, they're covering both the Milwaukee Bucks and the Milwaukee Brewers. And so between those two teams, it's almost 220, 225 regular season games and then playoffs and all of it. So the, the calendar year goes pretty quickly and, and resources are limited. So I think with the Brewers, it was, you know, the opportunity to continue and investing more, um, you know, being the on-field reporter during the season and at spring training, and then also this digital platform um, to be able to do kind of more of the, the feature type stuff, some off the field stuff with players um, and, and working with our digital team with the Brewers who are so extremely talented um, to put together more of that kind of content um, for both the broadcast and, and also for digital. Uh, you, as, as a part of a broadcast or a part of a team and uh, you know, with Brian Anderson's ties to Texas and, and with his brother, Mike, mm -hmm. have gotten to know uh, Brian and, and he's obviously someone who's achieved at a really high level. Uh, and it just seems like both the, the radio and TV teams uh, with the Brewers are really close and, and some really good people. But on, on the TV side of things, uh, what does it mean to you to be a part of a team and, and what are some of the things you've learned uh, that have been important in, in developing that chemistry and, and I guess being a, a good team player, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I'll say this, that like this time that we've been shut down from baseball and, and hopefully we can come back soon, I think you become so much more aware of all of those things that you miss on the daily basis. And I'm sure, Jared, you feel the same way in your role of like, I miss, what I miss is the people, you know, what I miss is, you know, we were two weeks away from opening day and you've spent now almost a month with this new team. Um, and for us, we had significant turnover from the team from last year that went to the wild card game. Uh, virtually half of the major league roster from that game was, was gone. And there was an extremely busy off season for the Brewers. They had brought in a lot of new players. We were starting to get to know them. Um, Plus, you know, the, the guys coming back from the last couple of seasons and, and you were kind of waiting to see how is all this going to fit? Um, you know, how's this team going to kind of gel together? And th that's what I miss. You know, I miss the people. I miss I miss talking to Craig Council every day. I miss the coaching staff. I miss the players. I miss the time in the clubhouse. Um, I miss watching them take BP every day, um, you know, talking to our coaches about what they're working on with certain players and, and they were really at that point where you were ready to get this thing going again. And, and you, you know, you always, you know, that like when you start a season, um, you're just, you're along for the ride, you know, and I've learned kind of that over the years is, is to just kind of enjoy the ride. Like it's, you know, when you're, things are going pretty good. Sometimes you're like, all right, well, you know, your things are going to take a dip here. Like things are never as good as they seem. And then when things are going poorly for the team, it's like, well, it's never as bad as what it seems either. So I've really just, I've learned that more than anything the last couple of years of just kind of how to enjoy that ride of a season, 
And unfortunately for the Brewers, you know, they've had great success the last two years to make it into the postseason. Um, I don't take for granted, you know, being on the field or in the room for those celebrations. I mean, it is, it is special, you know, to be in that room and to watch a group of people celebrate, you know, what they've been working for all year long. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, I think this time has really opened my eyes to like all those things that we miss that are also part of doing our job, you know, being in the clubhouse, being at BP, watching guys take early work, uh, talking to them about what's going on on the field, off the field, um, you know, also new players, like new players who come into the mix, whether it's a call up or a trade or, or, or whatever, you know, who come up and make a big impact. I mean, I miss, I just miss all of that, you know, and, and telling those stories and, how the stories change month to month during a baseball season. All right. Two more questions for you, Sophia. Uh, the first one I, I, I saw uh, that the Milwaukee business journal named you among their top 40 under 40. Uh, I, I don't know if this is something that, that means a lot to you or, or not, but you know, I know sometimes when you receive these honors, it, it, it forces you or it allows you a, a second to just kind of reflect on where you are and what you've done. It did, uh, for, congrats on on that honor. First of all, second of all, uh, was there any part of that uh, that you experienced on your end, like reflecting where you are and 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 maybe kind of taking some inventory on what you've accomplished and, and maybe what's next, or was it just kind of one of those things where it's like, hey, uh, I'm I'm I don't know, I I don't really the awards <laughs> don't really mean a whole lot to me, and and I'm not going to really think about it too much. No, I mean it's, it was it was a very cool recognition. Um, you know, I, I was very grateful to the people that nominated me. I mean, it's a, it's a fairly extensive process, um, and they draw hundreds of, of candidates and, and submissions. So, um, I, I, I certainly am grateful, like for those that wanted to nominate me and, and doing that work. And, you know, you're always kind of uncomfortable with that. Of at least I am like, I'm like, Oh, I, I don't know. Like there's gotta be someone better. You know, I'm just like, when you see kind of the rest of the, the candidates in the 40 under 40 class, you're like, wow, these people are doing such incredible, you know, such incredible work in the community and in their respective fields. And I'm like, I do sports, you know, like I cover major league baseball. You almost feel like you're not worthy um, being in that same group, but it, it, it is really cool recognition. It does make you kind of take stock of, you know, what, what you've been able to do. And I think for us, you know, being in the media, kind of this platform that we have and, and being visible and, and, and not taking that for granted either. Um, it, it, it was very cool. It was a cool event. Um, they did it over spring training this year, so fairly recently. And then it also just introduced me to a whole new group of people um, right here in Milwaukee that, um, again, are, are doing really amazing things in the city and great leaders. And it was it was cool to be included with them and and kind of create a new a new network of people um to kind of go to and, and talk to about things so you know you the last thing i want to ask you and you, you kind of leading into it uh mentioning the platform and and you know well, all i do is cover baseball but i know that's that's not actually the case i i always like to talk to people about some of the charity work they're involved in because i do think it's such a big part of uh you know maybe in, in our industry we have some kind of a platform and and you've really it seems like uh, connected with the the Mac Fund uh, in in support of, or, or I guess maybe uh, defense against childhood cancer and, and awareness. Uh, what first of all, what what can 
people do or what should people know and how they can maybe uh, support and, and take part in, in what you're doing and, and what led you down that path and, and what has that experience been like uh, connecting with the people and, and putting forth uh, some effort down that particular uh, avenue? Yeah, the, the MAC Fund is, is a really cool organization, and it's something I was actually, I was aware of it um, as a kid, but, but it was really when I started working for the Milwaukee Bucks um, because it was founded by, by John McLaughlin, who was one of the original Bucks, and, and the former Bucks radio announcer, Eddie Doucette, um, whose son had leukemia as a child. And so they, uh, you know, this was in the 70s. So, you know, childhood cancer was extremely rare at that point. There wasn't a lot of awareness. There was almost no research for it. Um, so they created the MAC Fund, Midwest Athletes Against Childhood Cancer. And, I mean, now it's, it's just taken off, and, and they've raised millions and millions and millions of dollars over the years. The Bucks do an annual MAC Fund game. Um, one of their preseason games is always a, a fundraiser for the Mac Fund. The Bucks are still very heavily involved in that. Um, but John McLaughlin was our was our TV analyst for for more than thirty years uh, with the Bucks. And so when I was covering the Bucks, I got to you know learn more about the Mac Fund through through Johnny Mac and through his family. And it just kind of connected with me. You know, it's like you think about these these kids who are who are so sick at such a young age, and um, you know how it impacts their families and and all of it. So it's really, it's research-based. Um, you know, it's research-based in order to find a cure for childhood cancer. Uh, it's treatment-based. So it's, it's been really cool um, to be a part of that on their Emerging Leaders Board, to work on events, fundraisers, awareness, um, all of it. So it's something that um, I've just, I've been a part of for, for the last couple of years. And, and also just being close to Marquette, you know, doing some mentoring with them over at the, the College of Com and in their, their alumni program. So it's been nice that I'm still kind of so still connected, like, to Milwaukee and, and to Marquette, my alma mater, and be able to, to do different things here and there when I'm able to.